Hi, ASQ blog listeners and readers. Welcome to this episode of ASQ podcast. We are at the Academy of Management meeting in Boston. We are very excited to have with us Professor Ryan Raffaelli from Harvard Business School, who has done a great deal of work in technology reemergence. We are interested in his recent ASQ paper on the Swiss mechanical watchmaking industry and how to create new values for old technologies. Thanks for being here, Ryan. Thank you. We also want to briefly introduce ourselves, the interviewers. I'm Amy Zhao Ding, a PhD candidate in entrepreneurship at INSEAD. I'm joined here by good friend and colleague Mara Guerra. Hi, I'm Mara Guerra, a PhD candidate in entrepreneurship and innovation at Imperial College Business School. Ryan, we're both very enjoyed reading your paper and the way you pioneered the exciting new field. Today, we want to focus on your process of crafting the paper and hopefully gain some behind-the-scenes insights into your work. If we're not mistaken, the paper was based on your doctoral dissertation. The first question is: How did the idea of technology reemergence first come about? Well, so I'm a qualitative researcher, and I went into this thinking about. The notion of inducing new theory, and so it was a balance of、um, reading a lot in the context of institutions and how fields both emerge, and then also,、uh, you know, work that Dick Scott and others had done on this notion of deinstitutionalization. It got me thinking: What would it look like for a field, or in the case of what ended up coming out of this paper, what would it look like for a technology to reemerge? So that's really where. Where this started, and you know, part of this was also then beginning to realize that if I wanted to explore this more fully, what would be contexts that might be able to illustrate that and help us understand、uh, either the processes and more specifically the mechanisms behind a notion、uh, and a new construct like reemergence. You're、um, driven by a theoretical puzzle.、Um, so, how did you go about choosing industries and the method? And、uh, is this influenced by your hobbies? So, when I first started thinking about this, I I started really looking for throwing a pretty wide net around where would I find examples of this. Now,、um, I'd always had a love for watches, and so. Um, partially, it's hard for me to know which came first. You know, the the theoretical gap or the idea that maybe watches could be interesting, but、um, it wasn't the only context that I was looking at. I was actually looking at several different contexts. I think I remember in a doctoral seminar and then at a conference on institutions coming back from that. And realizing this could be interesting, and in fact, I remember my advisor at the time, Marianne Glynn, saying, "You could study that、uh, this notion of of reemergence." And so,、um, the notion of watches was fascinating to me because it was so clear something was going on here that was it was breaking the rules around the notion of, in the case of mechanical watches, you had a new dominant design emerge. Which was, you had quartz-powered battery watches, and yet these mechanical watches, which were supposed to be like a dead technology, I often say most people thought that they would follow the same path as the telegraph, the typewriter, and the cassette tape, and yet you walk around and you read in magazines all these ads about mechanical watches, and that was part of the puzzle. And I thought, okay, what's going on here? Why does this exist? Maybe this is an example of. How to really begin to explore the concept of reemergence? 
Are you yourself a collector of mechanical watches? So I can't say I'm a collector. You have to, you know, you have to have a lot of money to collect these things. Part of actually one of the the things that I learned about the watch industry as part as as part of this was um, just how extreme the different types of watches are in terms of how much people will pay for them as they become more handcrafted. Um, some watches can be commissioned almost like pieces of art. So I was in some watch factories that would make only a dozen watches a year and sell each one for over a million dollars. Like that's on one extreme. And so there was all these different types of people that are buying these things. And um, to answer your question, I have a couple of these things, but no, but nowhere near like some of the people, nowhere near like some of the people that I that I interviewed for this study. Yeah, that's great. Um, so the second question is, um, we're very interested about the varied source of data you are using in this paper. We're especially fascinated with the use of ads as a source of data. Could you share with us the process of looking at how to collect them and gaining access to them? Of course. So. You know, the ads are one piece of the story, and it's probably helpful to, to understand how I got to the ads because um, the watch industry, I quickly came to realize, was highly secretive, very closed, was uh, sort of curious about outsiders wanting to study them and ask questions. So I started this work by doing a lot of archival analysis, reading a lot of books, but then also going right to industry associations, also museums, um, archives all over uh, both the United States and in Switzerland. Those people were more likely to talk to me out of the gate than uh, CEOs and executives of the watch brands themselves. So as I was in a lot of the archives, I started seeing and asking the uh, historians and archivists uh, what's sort of the source that most people in this industry use to track what's popular or emerging trends. And there was a couple journals that they kept talking about. And so I started looking at these journals and in these archives there was pieces of them around. You know, you'd get uh, a decade's worth of uh, these journals, maybe they would have them. So I, read it, I was reading a lot of these and through this um, what really struck me was I was looking at the same journal and the way that companies were um, talking about and advertising their watches and then looking, thinking about how they were being advertised today and I could see the difference. I mean it was a, such a stark difference about how the evolution of the industry and the technology could be told through uh, a series of advertisements and so I coupled this with um, starting to collect these and I started doing it across multiple archives. So you, know, you had to kind of piece these together and eventually over about our two or three year pro process I was able to get, get the whole collection of about 40 years of these uh, journals, one complete set, and then went about scanning all the advertisements in all of those journals uh, during that period. And as I was doing this, um, I started doing a lot of field work. So as a qualitative researcher for me, the, the interesting part was immersing myself almost like an anthropologist would, right, in terms of trying to understand this complex system because I was studying a community but also an industry. And so I started interviewing a lot of CEOs eventually. Um, I was showing up at industry events. Uh, in my world, we call these field configuring events. 
a lot like the Academy of Management is. It brings everybody together, right, from a lot of different places. So I would show up at these things and stand outside the booths of these watch companies with and ask them, uh, would you let me get 15 minutes with your CEO? Here's the thing what I'm doing. And I sort of pleaded with them and, you know, take pity on uh, this sort of young scholar, you know, and uh, eventually I started cracking through. You know, I also did things where for some of the most secretive companies, I would literally go onto their websites and look at the emails of the communications or the PR manager that they would put. And then I would try to reverse engineer with that what, what might be the email of the CEO, for example. And I would try those sorts of things. And, you know, often it would come back, you know, uh, didn't work, non-existent. But more than not, I could eventually break through and surprisingly... Um, you know, this was the sort of persistence that you had to do. It took me about two years before I really started getting traction with uh, company executives. And then because it was such a, a small community and tight community, once I started speaking to them, I would ask a CEO, who else do you think would be able to share and tell me more about this story? And that just snowballed, right? And so then I started cracking in. And because I was one of the first academics to want to understand this from a management perspective, um, people didn't want to be left out, right? And so that was the shift. And so as a result, you know, I was able to interview um, almost 150 senior executives for the for the project all as I as I look back now I think what I came up with is about 85 percent of all the watch industry sales um, I interviewed uh, executives from during over the 40-year time frame yeah um, so you mentioned you started out investigating the uh, industry through looking into the industry organizations and archival data. Um, so I'm wondering if there's any um, tell that you could see and to evaluate the prospect of the industry, whether it's worth studying, whether it's going anywhere with the research. There's a couple things that I, I learned from this project that I now have applied to subsequent projects as I look at how industries evolve from the lens of qualitative work. You know, if you if you think of to the, the number of, for example, ASQ articles that are industry or field level, but also qualitative, there wasn't a lot that I could look to as examples. You know, there was sort of a small handful. So part of the process for me was also thinking about what was the method I was going to use to capture all the different actors involved in trying to understand and and portray the evolution of an industry and a community. So there's a couple things that I've sort of now come to realize that I think are important for picking a context like this. And I, I now make sure that my doctoral students sort of work with these, with these criteria. And the first one is, um, can you quickly see a puzzle that's embedded in almost like a dependent variable that's attached to the phenomena? So for me, it was, why was there this drop in the uh, sales of mechanical watches, which we all would have expected after the emergence of a new dominant design. But the puzzle was, you could see this very clearly on a graph that you saw the drop, like we would expect, and then all of a sudden an uptick. And you saw year over year growth. And so I thought, okay, this is important because just through this one graph, I can illustrate the puzzle, the phenomenological puzzle that I knew would not only be interesting to me because it was, uh, if we could say, this is the puzzle, what I want to try to do is understand both the process and the mechanisms that led to the shift in the trend. For a qualitative researcher, that's important. 
And then the second thing was very practical in the sense that, you know, I lived with these data and I was in the field for almost seven years collecting these data. So uh, three and a half years as I was working on the dissertation and then another three years after the dissertation was done. Um, building out even more field interviews because through the review process, reviewers were asking for other things and I went back into the field several times. So the lesson there is is that pick a context that um, excites you and will sustain you because um, I see a lot of doctoral students often picking context because they see the data as being readily available. And while that can serve you well in the beginning of a project, you know, for qualitative work, I think especially because there, it, it can be so challenging, it can take so long to get it to the finish line. Um, you want to be able to see, uh, find energy from being in the context itself, or just if you find the the people you're interviewing interesting or the phenomenon, something beyond the theory that will keep you going. Uh, you told us about the importance of being immersed in the field, all, almost like an anthropologist, and you spin such a great story about the watchmaking industry and how mechanical watches reemerged. Could you share with us how the story or the key takeaway changed over time as the paper evolved? Yes, so one thing that I think the review process does is it really helps you fine-tune what's the story you want to tell that's different from the story of your dissertation, right? Because there's a dissertation story, but then there's also uh, a story that's appropriate for a paper that's, you know, 40 to 50 pages. And so, you know, coming into this process, you know, my dissertation was about how institutions and identities reemerge and evolve over time. And um, while the, the story of the technology was, was there, it was part of the it was part of sort of the question. And, you know, over the process of the of going through the reviews, what I really came to appreciate is, is that there was value in telling the story of why the Swiss mechanical watch itself um, saw a drop in demand and then came back. And so uh, the, the evolution of the story, I think, is largely about what was the unit of analysis. And what I became to really appreciate was is that the set of reviewers I was working with um, was were very excited about the notion of what was happening to the demand of the watch itself. And so could I tell that story through the organizations? And these other components of the institutional components and these notions of identity, what, what I realized is that those got folded into the story as almost different types of mechanisms. And I think that's really the value of working with a journal like ASQ because you have reviewers who are eager and, and willing to engage with you, especially with dissertation work. And having served on the editorial board for the last three or four years, you know, I now see a lot of these dissertation papers coming through. And I think the one thing that's unique about ASQ is, is that most reviewers can generally sense if it's a, if it's a dissertation paper. And we want to help. And I, I benefited from that. I certainly benefited from, I think, a set of reviewers and also an editor who said, let's, let's really push you and let's see if you can do it. Was ASQ your first choice in terms of outlet? This is a bit of a cheeky question. And do you face any challenges or like, what is the learning that you gain from the review process? 
So for me, all along, ASQ was the place that I thought that this uh, work would, would uh, hopefully land. I mean, that was sort of my goal, largely because I think that a journal like ASQ appreciates a big story. Right, And so I knew I was telling a story that was going to include a lot of actors. There was a lot going on here. And I, I read papers and I sort of said, okay, this is a journal that is excited about wanting to engage with these sort of ideas. And um, I also saw from colleagues the process that they had gone through through reviews where reviewers were willing to engage with these big ideas and help help a author work through and get get the discipline around it so that when it comes out it could be a very clean and succinct story. Um, you already shared with us some tips about choosing an interesting um, context for your research and we really appreciate your writing in the paper. We loved how you made that story and can you share some tips about writing for students? Well I think there's a couple things about uh, writing a story like this, which is that on one end there's the there's the narrative of what's happening. So the Swiss watch, watch industry, as you dig into it, there's there's all this interesting stuff happening. There's these infighting, and you know, um, generations of of people's livelihood are at stake. So there was all this sort of intrigue that came from it, and backstabbing, and different leaders that were sort of challenging each other, and. You know, part of the challenge of pulling this apart and figuring out how are you going to tell a story is what I did is I started creating narr narratives of the actual story that were atheoretical, right? So I was writing out almost like case studies and case narratives to try to lay out what are the key important building blocks of the story. And in fact, even when I was on the job market, one of the things that I did is I um, created a list of all of the stories that could help illustrate the different components of the theories that were being induced in the study. Because it was helpful for me as I was building out the mechanisms behind this and inducing the theory to be able to attach it to a set of very specific studies that could exemplify it. And so in the paper what you see is when mechanisms are introduced you have unique quotes or examples that come from maybe uh, you know several interviews but they represent a broader story that could probably be a paper on themselves and so um, doing the narrative uh, that sort of lays out here's all of the components of it was very helpful at the beginning because then I could step back and try to figure out okay now let's bring a theoretical lens to this and try to understand how is this evolving over time and what are the things that are making this happen? What are the mechanisms that are potentially driving the evolution of this story? Um, so we just talked about your um, interest in the industry itself um, and talked about craftsmanship. So how does this paper fit into your broader research stream? Um, how did publishing this paper affect your research trajectory and future plans? So this paper has really, for me, ignited a, a research program that looks more broadly at the notion of reinvention and how uh, not only organizations but industries have to reinvent themselves when faced with large technological shocks. And so this is a story of how communities evolve uh, in this context and what does it mean within the idea of the incumbent's disadvantage, right? Your past success can often turn on you, become a liability for future success. And so 
I've recently been doing a lot of work when I finished this work and uh, joined the faculty at HBS six, six years ago. Uh, I started right in the field on a subsequent study that I'm now working on that looks at the resurgence of independent bookstores, for example. So a lot of people don't realize that uh, over the last 10 years, there's been a 50% growth in the number of bookstores in the United States. And I, I was curious, how does that happen? Why is that happening? Because it's a different story than Swiss watches, which is often associated with craftsmanship and even luxury or status. Here is something much more pedestrian. It's a, it's a bookstore. H how does that happen? And uh, that's been fascinating for me because it's, it's opened up a bunch of research looking at um, what does it mean to compete in a world of, for example, retail and, and Amazon.com. Um, and they've seen these growth. And so I've been looking at that and also trying to understand this from the context of as leaders try to reinvent their organizations, what does that mean for the challenges that it comes from both preserving the past but also letting go of the past? And so it becomes a leadership story too. And so this has been really fertile ground for um, exciting work, I think, and hopefully you know, my doctoral students who have now joined with me on this feel the same. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. We really look forward to seeing more of that work. Um, do you have any advice for young and aspiring scholars, especially doctoral students who wish to publish in ASQ? I think that the one thing about publishing is in ASQ is that um, it, it, is, it is a journal that um, requires a significant amount of persistence and preservation, right? It is one of those journals that will give you uh, the opportunity to really explore some big ideas if you're willing to put in, I think, a significant amount of work, especially in the review process. You know, many of the, R a couple of the R&Rs that I went through required um, almost like starting over. But, you know, reviewers said, we think that there's something here. Um, let's let's see if you can do it and you know there there are times especially in uh the process where you sort of look at this and think is this possible like is what they're asking for even like how do i even start there and certainly the process of this paper going through has has helped me understand that you know we often think about reviewers as almost like out to get us but what I've come to really appreciate over the f last five or six years, not only with this with this process but other papers, is that most reviewers, when they're reading a paper for the first time, they're reading with an eye towards hoping that it gets published. And when they're asking you questions, what they're really trying to do is help you fine-tune your story, help you understand, okay, what what's sort of the gem that you want to polish? And if you can step back and realize that if, if they're approaching it from that angle, I think it takes some of the stress out of the review process, right? Because when you first look at this, you sort of look at it and think, I don't know how they possibly want me to do this. Um, but taking a step back, having, I think, senior colleagues and other colleagues review uh, letters with you and then also looking at your letters, you know, um, getting better at responses is a big part of a, a paper like this because you're you're helping the reviewers understand why you're making decisions and you know this paper changed form several times and each time it changed forms I had to spend a, a lot of time in the in the response letters helping the reviewers um, 
understand why I was making decisions that I was, and hopefully with that, giving them more confidence. This has been great. Thank you very much for joining us, Ryan. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you.